You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works number 266, the first of three volumes by Rudolf Steiner entitled From the Esoteric School, Esoteric Lessons 1904 to 1909, translated by James H. Hines. This does not con- is not conducive to chapters, so I'm reading it in sections. This is the second section of three sections of the 1907 uh, Esoteric Lessons. This is the esoteric lesson given in Munich on June 1st, 1907. Record A is a manuscript from Anna Weismann. Record B is a manuscript from Lilla Harris and Anonymous. Record C is a manuscript from Alice Kinkel. Record D is a manuscript from Amelie Fuchs-Glut. Record A. My beloved sisters and brothers, you are all more or less advanced into an esoteric training. Today we want to become clear concerning the nature of such a training. An esotericist must be clear about the fact that he or she is always surrounded by invisible, to ordinary people, invisible, beings. Just as we, for example, walk through the air, so too we are always walking through countless invisible beings wherever we may go. Everything, everything that surrounds us is an expression of such beings. When we take a breath in, we are not only breathing in air, but at the same time a lofty spiritual being whose physical body is air streams into us and fills our whole organism. When we exhale, this being again flows out of us. Now, we should be conscious of this with every breath of air, that a divine spiritual being enters into us, and we should also be clear that we ourselves want to become such a being one day ourselves. The being that is incarnated in the air stands much higher than we do today but it once stood where we stand now, and the time will come when we will have evolved ourselves as far as this being. Now, if we are in an esoteric school, then the exercises, in whatever form they may be given, should bring it about that we acquire a vivid awareness of this in-streaming spirit. What is it, then, that says, capital I, in us. That is the inhaled stream of air. It creates the red blood in us, and only because red blood flows through our body have we learned to say I. But a spiritual being influences us not only in the inflowing air, but everywhere in our body. In muscles, nerves, and bones, there are higher beings at work. However, one is not yet an esotericist, just by knowing this. When I say to myself, quote, 
in breathing, air enters me, close quote, then I am a materialist. When I know and recognize that a spiritual being flows into me with my breath, then I am a knower, but not yet an esotericist. But when I take in every breath filled with reverence, full of the deepest reverence for the divine being that is permeating my organism, when a lively feeling for this lofty being entirely fills me, then I am an esotericist. What does this being that is incarnated in the air do in me? He permeates my blood, filling my entire organism, so that an, in quotes, air body is formed, surrounded by bones, muscles, tendons, and so forth. I should become fully aware of this air body through the exercises. It is the same one who says capital I in me. If one does one's exercises with this understanding, then one is always becoming free. And it is as if an entirely new human being arises in one. Then one no longer says I to his or her bones, muscles and tendons. Then one feels him or herself fully in this air body, in the spirit of the God incarnated in the air one finds his or herself. What are humans actually doing when they do exercises? We must become very clear about this. When they are exercising, they are living the way one day in the future all human beings will live. During the time they are doing their exercises, esotericists are situated in a future state of humankind. In the future, all human beings will breathe as the esotericists do when they are doing breathing exercises, but they will only do it under certain conditions. Only in a yet more distant future will it be natural for all human beings to breathe this way. But then the human body will have become very, very different. It will be such that it is entirely natural for it to breathe the way esotericists do for periods of time. What an esotericist does is an anticipation of what will happen later. In a certain sense, it is not yet time appropriate. The physical body is not yet equipped for it. Esotericists, therefore, rush ahead of their time and create into the future. But only in this way is progress possible. Our earth could never evolve into the future unless there were people on it that already lived the way that all humankind will live only in the distant future. If there were no one on the earth who wanted to do esoteric exercises, then the earth would become increasingly rigid and hardened. Indeed, all human beings in Devakan work on transforming the earth. However, if those incarnated on the earth were only concerned to keep everything as, as it now is, and at the same time those living in Devakan wanted to transform the earth, then there would be no harmony in their working together. Humans living on the earth would cause the earth to ossify and rigidify completely 
and through the working of those in Devakan who want to transform the earth, the earth would ultimately split apart and be destroyed. For this reason, every esotericist must be fully aware what a holy obligation he or she is fulfilling when he or she does esoteric exercises. It is, of course, a contradiction of present-day conditions when an esotericist lives in a way that can only be natural in the future. But only in this way is progress possible. The human being must constantly use only a body that is possible and natural for the state of evolution. A being who, according to his spiritual development, belongs on Jupiter or Venus, in order to live among us, must make use of the physical body that we all have. However, in the spirit he leads a life that belongs to a distant, distant future. In this way, he or she gradually carries this future condition to us and makes it possible for this future to reach us. Now, someone could say, quote, couldn't humans go through such an evolution out of themselves without any esoteric school? Close quote. Certainly they could do this. For every human being will, for example, in the course of his or her evolution, come to a transformation of the breathing process. But this is like someone saying, quote, I want to learn mathematics entirely out of myself, without a teacher. Close quote. Then such a person would have to forego any mathematics textbooks. Of course, one could learn mathematics in this way. But one would need approximately 3,000 years in order to learn something that one could learn with the help of a teacher in five months. In itself, it would be very possible, yes, certainly, that someone could find on his or her own the esoteric exercise he or she is now learning. For the exercises are all grounded in human nature. Only people would need not 3,000 years, but many hundreds of thousands of years. The path should be shortened by esoteric schools. They have no other purpose. By doing such esoteric exercises, humans grow spiritually into the future. They experience within themselves what one day will be in the future, and what they experience in this way is what we know as the higher worlds. They represent future conditions of humanity. Thus, in every moment, we must be aware of our holy obligation to feel the God who flows into us with every breath. He streams into us when we inhale. But in exhaling, we kill his body by making the air unusable. However, our exercises gradually teach us to breathe out air that is as pure as the air we breathe in. Those who do not want to learn this through exercises will naturally one day also achieve it. But they must wait until in the future the human body will have been so transformed that such breathing naturally results, just as the present-day way of breathing results from today's constitution of the body. Today, air flows into and out of us and transforms expended blood into usable blood. Has it always been this way? No. 
There was a time when what is the warmth in our blood was not yet within us, but rather flowed into and out of our organism, just as air does today. Just as the spirits of air flow through us today, at that time it was the spirits of fire. The human being then breathed warmth in and out. And just as red blood could be formed under the influence of the spirits of air, so at that time, when the spirits of fire worked in our organism, another substance flowed through all beings as the life fluid, milk. What flows in all beings today as milk, which nourishes their young, is a residue from that time. Only today the functions in the human body that are connected with milk are guided by other beings. When youthful humanity was being formed on the earth, for example during the time of Atlantis and during the first races of our post-Atlantean peoples, the leaders who guided them were not yet human beings, but rather spirits of fire. For this reason we must first establish a connection with them in our striving upward. But just as is still the case that not all people make equal progress forward, but rather a portion always remains behind, so too was it the case back then. A portion of the spirits of fire remained behind the others and then formed a resistance against the new evolution. The air and wind spirits had already begun their work among humans, taking over from the ancient fire spirits, when the fire spirits who had been left behind stood in their way, hindering their work. The Nordic saga gave people an idea of their being in the saga of the god Loki. He was such a, in quotes, fallen fire spirit who opposed the old Norse gods. He is the one who brought about Baldur's death. Wotan, the blowing one, is a spirit of the wind. The ancient Nordic peoples felt him when they heard the raging storm, when they inhaled the wind into their body. These Nordic peoples were not without mysteries. We know how our post-Atlantean race poured forth from the west, from ancient Atlantis toward the east. As the mystery schools blossomed in Atlantis, they also remained preserved in the new main race or root race, first the Indian, second the Persian, third the Chaldean, Babylonian, Egyptian, Semitic, fourth the Greco-Roman race. But not all the multitudes that came out of Atlantis migrated eastward all the way into this region. A portion remained in the west, in the region of today's Europe. It also had its mysteries, which were later developed into what we know as the Druidic and Trotten mysteries. But this Western culture did not remain separated from what was formed in the East. What gradually blossomed in the East developed its highest peak in what lies at the foundation of the wisdom of the Old and New Testaments. This came to the West as a mighty infusion and united with what had quietly evolved here. This infusion was enormously beneficial. We must be clear about the fact that Atlantis is the source of all the wisdom of the East as well as of the West. 
Atlantis was a land that was enveloped in thick masses of water mist. These thick masses of water mist had a very specific relationship to human beings of that age, who felt, them, who felt something with these masses. They made their souls receptive for the language of God. In the splashing of the springs, in the rustling of the leaves, the Atlanteans heard God speaking to them. And when they were lonely and quietly turned within, they perceived a sound as the voice of God who spoke to them. They needed no laws or commandments. God himself told them what they must do. And the sound that sounded forth everywhere in Atlantis and that echoed from the hearts of people in quiet hours of introspection was later set as the Tau symbol in Egypt. This is also the original form of the cross. If we are now clear on how the masses of water mist back then created a connection with the divine so that humans could directly receive and understand the wisdom of their God, then we now want to direct our gaze to the water that flows in our countries. When we see a drop of dew on grass sparkling in the light of the morning sun, then our heart becomes reverent. And this radiant drop of dew is a reminder for us, a reminder of those times in Atlantis when water as mist enveloped the land and the human being sensed the wisdom of the gods all around. The wisdom of Atlantis was incarnated in water, in dewdrops. Tau, our German word Tau, is nothing other than that ancient Atlantean sound. Thus we want to look upon every dewdrop with reverence and devotion as a holy legacy of that time, when the connection between human beings and gods was not yet broken. The Tau symbol, the ancient cross symbol, is called crux in Latin. And what is Tau, dewdrop in Latin? Rose. Rose crux is our Rosenkreuz. Now we know its true significance. It is the Tau of Atlantis, the wisdom of Atlantis that flows to us today in drops of dew. The Rose Cross wants to say to us nothing other than this. It is a symbol for new life that will blossom in the future in a spiritual way. Thus our northern race remained intimately connected to ancient Atlantis. It was different with those races that migrated east and evolved into the four sub-races of the Indians, Persians, Egyptians and Greco-Romans. They underwent an independent evolution. However, there is a law in the spiritual world that every race that independently struggles into the heights for a while must fall into ruin unless it receives a new infusion from those regions where it originated, those regions which were its motherland. Thus it was necessary for the lofty Eastern culture to receive an infusion from our regions, to be melded with the spiritual intellectual cultures that had quietly been formed in our countries. That lofty spiritual individuality who recognized this was Christian Rosenkreutz, 
He was the one who in the 13th and 14th centuries undertook the great work of uniting the spiritual culture of the East with that of the West. He has always lived among us and is still with us today as leader in the spiritual life. He brought the spiritual culture of the East as it is represented in the Old and New Testaments as the highest blossom of Eastern wisdom into intimate harmony with the wisdom that originated in Atlantis. Thus he gave us Christianity in the form in which it had been prepared and introduced by that mysterious, quote, unknown man from the highlands, close quote, who came to Johannes Tauler. Highlands signifies the spiritual world, the kingdom of heaven. The lofty spiritual being who was concealed in the unknown man from the highlands was none other than the Master Jesus himself, in whose body Christ once lived on earth. He, too, is with us today. The Master Jesus and the Master Christian Rosenkreutz prepare for us two paths to initiate, to invitation, the Christian esoteric path and the Christian Rosicrucian path. Uh, readers aside, I believe the word invitation should be initiation, but I'm not sure. And the readers aside. Both of these paths have existed since the Middle Ages, but the spiritual life has increasingly disappeared from human consciousness with the rise of materialism. At the end of the 19th century, materialism had become so powerful that humankind needed a new spiritual infusion if it was not to perish. There was a single personality who, because of her psychic constitution, was able to receive the voice of the Master. This was H. P. Blavatsky. When she began her work, not all esoteric traditions had been lost. There were, rather, in the West, numerous brotherhoods that had received preserved esoteric wisdom, but in a rigid, ossified form without vital life. When H. P. Blavatsky wrote her title Isis Unveiled, They vociferously claimed that this wisdom belonged to them, for many of the symbols and teachings were known to them, and they sought to place hindrances in her path every way possible. Thus H. P. Blavatsky was harassed in the worst way possible in an attempt to prevent her from fulfilling her work in a Christian esoteric sense, as was her original intention. Indeed, at that time she had to suffer through terrible things, and those esoteric brotherhoods actually managed to bring things to the point where she had to clothe what she had to say in Eastern dress in her second work titled The Secret Doctrine. Even today we are still accustomed to having most terms for esoteric connections in Eastern language. But this Eastern form of wisdom is nothing for us Western people. It can only hinder us and bring us back from our goals. The people who are to form the kernel for the following races are here in the West. This should be given as a factual answer to what the voice of the masters from the East made known a short while ago. Our Western masters have also spoken, although less noisily, and we want to write deeply into our hearts what they said. 
they called upon us to work with them in the future, on the future evolution of humankind and to stand firmly and endure in all the battles that yet stand before us to hold firmly to what we possess as a living holy tradition. This call should always sound in our souls. However, no one should believe that there exists any disharmony between the masters of the East and the West. The masters always live in harmony. Nevertheless, in recent time, a decision, a decisive change has taken place with regard for the esoteric schools of the East and the West. Until now, both schools were united in a great circle under a common leadership of masters. Now, however, the Western school has made itself independent, and there now exist two schools on the same level, one in the East and one in the West, two smaller circles instead of one great one. The Eastern school is led by Mrs. Annie Besant, and those who, in their hearts, feel themselves drawn to her, can no longer remain in our school. Everyone should well consider for which path his or her heart longs. Two masters stand at the head of our Western school, the Master Jesus and the Master Christian Rosenkreutz, and they lead us on two paths, the Christian esoteric and the Christian Rosicrucian. The Great White Lodge guides all spiritual movements, and the Masters, Jesus and Christian Rosenkreutz, belong to it. That would be an answer, as a factual answer, to the questions that many have asked themselves as a result of recent events. We are standing at the dawn of the sixth day of creation. We should evolve the sixth and seventh sub-races out of ourselves. The future is already present in us as a dawn. Understanding that, receive what the Master Christian Rosenkreutz says to you. Quote, or parenthesis, there followed the reading of the words of the Master. Close parenthesis. Record, that's the end of record A. This is record B. The entire human physical organism, this wonderful construction of the physical body, with all its organs, bones, nerves, the glandular system, the blood circulation, would never have come about if spiritual beings had not been working on the human being throughout all of human evolution. Even now, spiritual beings are still continuously working on the human being. Such beings who are working on the formation of the human body were fire spirits on the moon. On the earth, they have given their warmth to humans. It has been transferred to humans' warm red blood. They themselves now live in the air. And when humans inhale air, they are inhaling these lofty spiritual beings. They are the beings who formed the I in humans' capital by streaming into them in the air. This is portrayed for us in words, quote, God blew the living odum into man, into his nose, and thus man became a living soul. Close quote, Genesis 2.7. The air or wind god is Yahweh or Jehovah. Yahweh means the blowing one. The name Wotan means the same. 
that is also the one raging through the storm. It is the God whom humans inhale. The breathing process is not merely a physical process, but also a spiritual process. It must become a holy process for us. As the air penetrates into us, God thereby creates a physical body in us. That is the branches of the breathing organism, which give God a physical organ within which he can work. We need to distinguish between the exoteric, materialistic understanding that sees only the physical process of oxidation in the inhalation of air and outer esotericism, which understands that a God is at work in the human being in the breathing process. Then there is inner esotericism. Inner esotericism is when we experience God within while breathing, when we experience divine being in all things. The physical body of the human being is not to be seen as his or her eye, but rather the eye lives in the inhaled air. The air that we exhale is deadly air that the God cannot use. Thus we kill the body of this God. In the future, the process of breathing will proceed in such a way that we ourselves transform the air within us, that we transform the air the way the world of the plants does. Gradually, people's breathing will change. All human beings will one day reach the point where they can breathe in an entirely different way. However, in order for this future condition to be brought about, Some people must already begin to transform their breathing process. If no one were to begin doing this, then the future would not be brought about. Precisely through the fact that some people begin now with this transformation, is it possible that in the future other people will reach this place? We ourselves must bring this possibility about. What we recognize and practice in this way is not mere ancient wisdom, but wisdom of the future. If we go back into the distant part of this earth, then conditions were entirely different. Then the human being lived in Atlantis, a land of mists. The air at that time was permeated by masses of water and clouds of mist. A memory of this remained with our predecessors in the stories of Niflheim, Nebelheim. Our human predecessors lived in this water-drenched air. They were not yet taught about the world the way we are now, but wisdom itself dwelled in the air that, in the water that filled the air. It sounded to them from the water. Everything in nature around them had a language that was perceptible to humans in the rustling of leaves, in the rushing of the trees, in the babbling of the brooks, in the blowing wind, in the rolling thunder, in the splashing of the waves, they perceived a sound that told them of the wisdom of God. From all of nature surrounding them, a sound came toward them. The sound was the wisdom contained in the water, characterized by the Tau, T, the cross. 
There is a word for this also in our German language. Let us observe the drops of dew in the morning, the way they are gathered on the blossoms. The word dew, tau in German, is the same term as the word tau for that which the water of wisdom reveals to humans. The German word tau indicates this. In Latin, tau is called rose, and the cross is called crux, and rose crux means both together, the sign for tau, the cross, and the dew on the plants. This is the esoteric significance of the exoteric sign for the cross wound around with roses. A great multitude of people streamed from the west to the east after the age of Atlantis. Part of this mass of peoples remained in Middle Europe, another part pushed on to Asia, and then southward. From this mass the peoples of the following cultures derived, Indians, Persians, Babylonians and Assyrians, the Greeks and Romans, the first four sub-races of the Indo-European main race. At first culture went forth from them, but the same initiations that were introduced there also existed in Middle Europe among those who had been left behind. There were also initiating priests who imparted the initiation that corresponded to the one in India, Persia, Egypt, Greece, and Rome. These were the Druids and the Trotton. In order for the evolution of humankind to continue, a new impulse had to occur after the four first sub-races. The peoples of Middle Europe still had a memory of ancient Atlantean times, of the Tao wisdom, which had to be united with another wisdom, a stream that came from Eastern wisdom. That was the wisdom of the Old and New Testaments, which was brought by Christ Jesus. If this new impulse had not come, then stagnation would have entered and humankind would have gone to its destruction. Thus the wisdom of the Old and New Testaments was united through Christ Jesus with the Atlantean Tao wisdom. In 1459 it was Christian Rosenkreutz who recognized the necessity for the Tao wisdom to be united with Christianity for the bringing about of the new evolution. He brought the Tao or Rose Crux wisdom to the middle people of Middle Europe, which was united with the wisdom of the Old and New Testaments. At the time of Johannes Tauler there lived a personality who was called the quote, unknown man from the highlands. Close quote. This personality taught Johannes Tauler, who then afterward preached so powerfully that some of the listeners were left as if dead. The individual who appeared in this personality, the unknown man from the highlands, was the individuality of the Master Jesus, who has always guided the evolution of the West, even if hidden. The other master individuality, Christian Rosenkreutz, worked together with this individuality in the West. They are now also the masters of the West, who are guiding evolution in Middle Europe. The Lodge of Masters forms a brotherhood. Nevertheless, the work that they do for the progress of humankind varies. 
just as both of the other masters work for the East, so these two masters work for the West. None of the scholars living in the West in the last third of the 19th century were suitable to convey the new spiritual infusion to the world, which the Great White Lodge recognized as necessary in order to protect the West from the downfall brought about by materialism. Nevertheless, in Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, the Masters found the most suitable instrument for bringing the new teaching to the world, the wisdom that is to bring about the future. H. P. Blavatsky wrote down the Western wisdom that was given to her at that time in title Isis Unveiled. This is a significant work, containing great treasures of the highest truths, but they are in part presented as if in a great caricature. For this reason, H. P. Blavatsky was not understood at that time in the West. Also in the West there are great occult brotherhoods, and many of them were not in agreement with what H. P. Blavatsky did. Among them there arose a mighty persecution against her, from which H. P. Blavatsky suffered terribly, although no one had any idea of it. These occult brotherhoods wanted to teach occult wisdom only in the orthodox way. For this reason they banded together against H. P. Blavatsky. She intended to bring specifically the wisdom of the future to the West. However, since she was not understood, she turned to the East and allowed herself to be inspired by the wisdom of the East, which she wrote down entitled The Secret Doctrine. That is Eastern wisdom. An answer should be given to the question that has been posed concerning the appearances of the masters in Adyar. It is not the responsibility of the esotericist to decide whether these appearances are genuine or not. The masters of the West have spoken less noisily than the masters of the East. The call from the masters of the West goes out to all in the West, asking whether they want to attach themselves to the leadership of the two masters of the West. If we wanted to introduce the wisdom of the East here, to follow the Eastern training here in the West, then that would signify ruin for the West. We need the wisdom of the future, Western training. That is given to us by these two masters. Earlier, the Western school was attached to the Eastern, subordinate to it. Now the two are only connected in brotherhood, but are proceeding entirely independently alongside one another. The Western school is from now on no longer subordinate, but coordinate. What is given through me on behalf of the masters of the West proceeds independently alongside what Mrs. Besant teaches on behalf of the masters of the East. The Christian esoteric training and the Christian Rosicrucian training continues to exist in the West. The former trains through the feelings, the later through the understanding. The declining races in the East still need the Eastern training. The Western training is the one 
for the races of the future. That's the end of record B. Record C is an excerpt, fairly short. In order to bring evolution forward, the masters must also be in a physical body. The master of the sixth dawn is Christian Rosenkreutz. Jesus of Nazareth, Christian Rosenkreutz. If we try to take this into our feeling and let it become an experience, then we will understand that there must be an esoteric school of the West and one of the East. They stand next to one another equally valuable. Each has its two masters, Mahatma Kuthumi and Mahatma Moria, Master Jesus of Nazareth and Master Christian Rosenkreutz. One of these schools is led by Mrs. Besant, the other by Dr. Steiner. A decision must be made as to which one wants, as to which one wants to turn to. The end of record C. Record D is again also somewhat short. Drops of dew are a reminder of the water of the divine primal womb that gave birth to the human being, and at the same time a reminder of baptism, of the baptism done in memory of this water. Every single dewdrop is a memorial, a last remnant of this divine connection. Tau, T-A-U, and Tau, T-A-O, are the same. Our souls once felt in the Tao, T-A-O, this resting in the divine. We have descended into matter. Again, we have purified ourselves from this matter so that we have become so transparently clear as a drop of dew. When the astral body has become a diamond-like soul, parenthesis C, titled The Voice of the Silence, close parenthesis, then we ascend in the three triangles and receive the divine word from the Creator that rests in the I-A-O, E-A-O. We then receive the bread of life of Buddhi, the Christ principle that is expressed in the golden cross, parenthesis, gold is the color of Buddhi, close parenthesis. At the same time, the transformation occurs that is the deepest idea in the Last Supper, in the Holy Grail. The fire of the blood that has become unholy again becomes holy, pure and chaste. It again assumes a plant-like nature. And then we achieve, when we work in the whole wheel of life, that is when our will is working in the world will that guides evolution, when we have totally immersed our will in the Father will, union with the Father. This is indicated in the wheel of life, in the waters of wisdom, manas, in the cross and the roses, buddhi, in the wheel of life, atman, e-a-o, also contains Christian Rosenkreutz, diu, ros, crux. That's the end of record D and the end of that esoteric lesson. This is the next esoteric lesson given in Munich on June 6, 1907. Record A is a manuscript from Anna Weismann. Record B, manuscript from Alice Kinkel. This is Record A. We must become clear concerning what the foundations for an esoteric training are and what their nature actually is. 
The school that we belong to is organized in such a way that there are various circles within it. All those who newly come to it are seekers. Those who advance further belong to the practicing. And the actual training then attaches to this. Our school breaks down into these three circles. We have all entered the esoteric school in order to develop certain organs within, which enable us to experience higher worlds ourselves. Altogether, how does one develop organs in oneself? All our organs have arisen through our earlier activity. We would like to illustrate this with an example. There was a time when none of us had eyes yet. At that time humans moved in a hovering, swimming fashion in a watery primal sea. Their sense of direction was provided by an organ that today is present only as a rudiment. This is the so-called pineal gland. It lies in the middle of the head under the cranium. Someone somewhat turned in. With many animals one can see it if one lifts the cranium. With this organ, humans in past ages could tell if they were approaching something that would harm them or be useful to them. Above all, it was an organ for perceiving warmth and cold. When the sun shone down on the earth at that time, humans could not see it, but the pineal gland drew them to a place in the watery sea where the sun warmed the water. And this warmth gave them a feeling of blessedness, At such locations in the water they remained for a long time and came close to the surface so that the rays of the sun could meet them. And through the rays of the sun, falling directly on their bodies, our present-day eyes were formed. Therefore two things were necessary so that eyes could arise. First of all, the sun had to shine down. On the other hand, humans had to swim out to the places that were warmed by the sun, and expose themselves to it. Had the people of that time not done that, but rather said to themselves, I want to develop only what already lies within me, then they could have developed an even larger pineal gland, a monster of an organ, but they never would have acquired eyes. In just the same way, we must imagine the development of spiritual eyes, One must not say, quote, higher eyes already lie within me. I must merely develop them, close quote. Neither could human beings develop the sun out of themselves, but they could develop the eyes to see it. So too we can only form the organs needed to see the spiritual sun, the higher worlds, but cannot develop that sun out of ourselves. And we could never develop the organs, unless both the spiritual sun were shining on us and we hurried to expose ourselves to it so that it could shine on us. The places where the spiritual sun shines for us are the esoteric schools. And those who are at work in the esoteric schools are met by its rays when they conduct themselves according to the instructions from the school. Every organ 
that had a past will also have a future. The pineal gland will again in the future be an important organ, and those who are in esoteric schools are already working on its development. The exercises that are given to us have an effect not only on the astral and etheric bodies, but also on the pineal gland. And when the effects are very penetrating, they go from the pineal gland out to the lymph vessels and from there into the blood. But not only those who are now doing occult exercises, but indeed all humans, will have a developed pineal gland in the future. And with those people who will constitute an evil race, it will be an organ for the worst and most terrible impulses. And it will be so large that it forms the largest part of the body. As one sees many gnats in the distance as a swarm of gnats, so one would then be able to see the earth itself as a great gland in space, because so many glandular human bodies will be walking around on the earth. However, those who have developed their pineal gland in the proper way will have a noble and perfect organ. Now, we want to consider more closely the exercises that have been given us while bearing in mind that these exercises are what makes our souls receptive for spiritual sun rays. To a certain extent, the six auxiliary exercises serve as preparation for the actual esoteric exercises. In those who devote themselves to these auxiliary exercises with a proper earnestness and enthusiasm, they will create the fundamental soul constitution necessary in order to derive the proper fruit from occult exercises. Number one, control of thought. For at least five minutes daily one should take time to reflect on an object as insignificant as possible, in which one has no interest from the outset. One should logically connect everything one can think about this object. It is important that it be an insignificant object, for it is precisely the control that one must then exert on oneself in order to abide with it that awakens the slumbering faculties in the soul. After a time, one notices in one's soul a feeling of solidity and confidence. Now, you must not imagine that this feeling overwhelms you with surprising power. No, this is a very fine, subtle feeling that you must listen for. Those who claim that they absolutely cannot sense this feeling within are most like those who go out to find a very small, delicate object among many other objects. Indeed, they do seek, but only superficially, and then they can't find the small object because they overlook it. One must listen very quietly, and then one senses this feeling. Indeed, it appears primarily in the front part of the head. If one has felt it there, then one pours it into the thoughts in the brain and into the spinal cord. Gradually, one then comes to think that rays are going forth from the forebrain back into the spinal cord. Number two, initiative in action. For this exercise, one must choose an action that one thinks up for oneself. 
If, for example, one takes as an activity the watering of a flower, which is given in the instructions as an example, then one is doing something entirely useless. For the action must arise from one's own initiative. That is, one must think of it oneself. Then with this exercise a feeling soon makes itself noticeable. Something like this, quote, I can achieve something, close quote, or quote, I am more diligent than before, close quote, or quote, I feel the need to be active, close quote. Actually, one feels this in the entire upper part of one's body. One then tries to let this feeling flow to the heart. Number three, superiority to pleasure and pain. For example, one feels oneself starting to cry. Then it is time to do this exercise. One forces oneself with all one's might not to cry now. The same holds for laughing. When laughter comes, one tries not to laugh, but rather remain calm. This does not mean that one should not laugh anymore, but one must take oneself in hand and become master over laughing and crying. And if one has overcome oneself a few times, then one soon senses a feeling of calmness and equanimity. One allows this feeling to flow through one's entire body by first pouring it out from the heart into one's arms and hands so that it radiates out through one's hands into one's deeds. Then one lets it stream to one's feet and at last to the head. This exercise demands serious self-observation. One should carry it out for at least a quarter of an hour every day. Number four, positivity. One should know how to find the kernel of goodness in everything bad, how to find the beautiful in everything ugly, and also the little spark of divinity in every criminal. Then one gets a feeling as if one were expanding out of one's skin. It is a feeling similar to the feeling of becoming larger that the etheric body has after death. If one senses this feeling, then one lets it radiate away from one through the eyes, ears, and the entire skin, but mainly through the eyes. Number five, openness. One should keep oneself flexible, always be capable of taking in something new. If someone tells us something that we consider improbable, nevertheless there must always remain a little corner in our hearts where we say to ourselves, this person could be right. This does not need to make us undiscriminating. We can always check the facts. Then a feeling overcomes us as if something were streaming toward us from outside. This we draw in through our eyes, ears, and our entire skin. Number six, balance. The five previous feelings should be brought into harmony by giving each of them an equal amount of attention. These exercises do not need to be done for one month each. It is just that a period of time has to be indicated. What is most important is that these exercises be done precisely in this sequence. Those who do the second exercise before the first 
derive no benefit whatsoever, for it is just the sequence that is important. Some even think they must begin with the sixth exercise, with harmonizing. But can anything be harmonized when it doesn't exist? For those who do not wish to do the exercises in the proper sequence, the exercises are useless. It is as if someone wanted to climb a set of six steps and wanted to take the sixth step first. It is just nonsensical to want to begin with the sixth exercise. Then, most of us have received a morning meditation. One should do this early in the morning at an hour one sets for oneself and that one adheres to as strongly as possible. One first meditates on seven lines. For several of us, the words are, quote, In pure rays of light shines the divinity of the world. In pure love to all beings radiates the divinity of my soul. I rest in the divinity of the world. I will find myself in the divinity of the world. Close quote. In doing this meditation, one should not speculate concerning these seven lines, but rather live entirely within them. One should imagine them very graphically in pictures. Thus, in pure rays of light, here one feels oneself flooded all around by rays of light that penetrate to one from all sides. One sees its radiance as clearly as one is capable of doing shines the divinity of the world. One imagines that it is God who is flowing toward one in these rays. One tries to feel Him and take Him into oneself. In pure love to all beings radiates the divinity of my soul. One imagines how one lets the divine rays that one has received stream forth for the great joy of all beings. The closing lines should awaken the imagination and feeling that one is entirely embedded in the rays of God and that one finds oneself within them. Those who wish to imagine this especially graphically can ultimately also imagine a tree that they are especially fond of and to which they gladly return. After these seven lines, a word or a sentence is given to us for contemplation. This concentration on a sentence or a word, for example, strength, is very important. This is a kind of watchword, a word of power that is adapted exactly to the soul constitution of every individual. One should let this word resonate in one's soul as one would strike a tuning fork and as one listens to the sounds of a tuning fork fading away, so one should, after meditating on the word, let the sound of it fade away in the soul. One should devote oneself to what has been brought about in the soul by the word. In conclusion, one meditates five minutes more on his or her divine ideal, what kind of ideal it may be, does not come into consideration. What is of concern is only the creation 
of the proper mood in the soul. It doesn't matter whether one thinks of the master or of the celestial sphere. Atheists have even come who thought they did not have a divine ideal, but their attention was drawn to the celestial sphere, which, nevertheless, draws forth a feeling of devotion and reverence from everyone. Those who have begun with these exercises should remain with them and not skip them when they are just not feeling like it. The astral body and the etheric body soon get used to these exercises and revolt if they do not get them. An interruption or worse, a complete cessation is very dangerous under all circumstances. The evening retrospection is also important. It must be done backward, since we should accustom ourselves to the way of perceiving on the astral plane. When doing the retrospection, one must imagine everything as graphically, as pictorially as possible. Of course, at the beginning, if one had eighty significant experiences, one could not call up all eighty pictorially in one's mind. Here, one must make a wise selection until finally all the day's experiences unroll before one like a tableau. Again, what is important here are the small insignificant actions, for it is precisely our effort to recall them that awakens powers in the soul. The end of record A. Okay, the end of record A. This is record B. It is incumbent upon us today to hold an hour of instruction, indeed one for discussing some elementary facts of esotericism. In an esoteric school, one distinguishes between seekers and those who practice the exercises. One also distinguishes steps that one can ascend. All of you, my dear brothers and sisters, are more or less seekers. You wish to become those who practice the exercises. Now you must develop organs for these exercises. How is this done? What is now an activity in a person will later become an organ. What I will now say, some of you have already heard, but that doesn't matter, repeated hearing fosters occult power. An organ that is rudimentary in present-day human beings is the pineal gland. Earlier it played a very important role. This pineal gland is embedded under the cranium, somewhat turned in. Earlier it was the organ humans used instead of eyes, which did not exist at that time, to perceive, to feel warmth. By means of this organ, human beings, who at that time still hovered or swam, felt themselves drawn from the cold world sea toward the warmer places within it, which were shone upon by the sun. At those places human beings felt a kind of blessedness. If the beings of that time had wanted to do nothing more than what already lay within their abilities, that is, to develop a pineal gland, then they would have become beings with monstrous pineal glands, with a monster of an organ. But they let themselves be guided by this organ to the places in space that were shown upon by the sun. In this way, they developed their eyes, for which at that time they had only the germ. 
where an activity later becomes an organ. They experienced a feeling of well-being at these warm places, but when their eyes saw the sun for the first time they felt pain. By overcoming this pain, humans earned the ability to see. You must do the same with the exercises that have been given to you, and thus you will develop the organs that will guide you later up into higher worlds. You do not find God in yourselves, but rather you must develop the organs in order to get up to Him. Two paths are shown to you. You will advance, number one, through study, and number two, through these exercises, unless you are too complacent to do them with patience and endurance. The exercises are divided into a morning meditation, an evening retrospection, and those preliminary exercises that are given to all of you. The six steps of the auxiliary exercises are to be done in the sequence indicated, for only in this way is occult power developed. If you have finished with the six months, then you start again at the beginning. Parenthesis, an example was given. We go over a bridge that is six steps long in order to get to a goal. There, too, we cannot take the sixth step first. Rather, we must take the six steps in sequence. The sixth step harmonizes the five preceding steps. If we wanted to take that one first, one would have to say, can something be harmonized where there is nothing? Close parenthesis. All abstract thinking has no value at all for occult development. Thinking in pictures is the only thing that has any value there. The six steps of these auxiliary exercises are the following. The first step is control of thought. The second step is initiative in actions. The third step is overcoming pleasure and pain. The fourth step is called positivity. The fifth step is openness. The sixth step is harmony of the five steps. Number one, control of thought. For this purpose, one takes an insignificant object, since what is important is the effort that calls forth the inner powers, not our interest in the object. For example, a matchstick, a hairpin, a steel pen, etc. One can ask oneself how the object came into existence. What does it consist of? How is it produced? Where is it produced? What would happen if the object did not exist in the world. The more effort you must put into it and overcome yourself, the better it is. It is the same case as before when the eyes came into existence. Hold an object that does not interest you in your consciousness for five minutes. That is what is important. Then you are happy when you let it go. Number two, initiative and action. Some of my pupils have done this exercise wrongly when they carried out the given example, watering flowers, instead of carrying out an action that they would otherwise never have carried out, as was intended. It must be an action that one has come up with out of one's own soul. Everyone must find his or her own initiative action. Its usefulness is not important. It must not happen as a result of necessity or from one's goodwill, 
for example, giving ten cents to the poor, nor should it be done because it is ethical. The activity that creates occult organs must happen as a result of one's own initiative and strength of mind. Number three, overcoming pleasure and pain. With a strong will, one must master pleasure and pain so they do not carry one away. We must change from being the horses to being the driver. That's from Plato. If the impulse to cry rises within us, we should suppress it with all our efforts and say, you are not going to cry now. The same holds for laughing. This is all intended only for a certain time, about a month. 4. Positivity What is intended is expressed in the following legend. Christ Jesus went walking with his disciples. There they saw by the road a dead dog that was very decomposed. The disciples turned away full of disgust and said, Oh, that ugly animal! Christ Jesus, however, stood there, looked lovingly at the carcass, and then said, This animal has such wonderfully beautiful teeth. This positivity is drawing out and seeing the beautiful and the true, even in what is ugly or evil, in the criminal or in falsehood. Subtle self-observation also belongs here. Number five, openness. We are open to new experience. If someone tells us that a straight, upright tower overnight suddenly stands crooked, say at a 45-degree angle, and we do not say, no, I don't believe that, that's impossible, one must develop the feeling that nothing is impossible. Number six, bring harmony into the five steps. The five previous steps are the precondition for this step. The sequence is extraordinarily important. One must not want to do the sixth step before the first five steps. Nothing is harmonized if there is nothing there to harmonize. While these six exercises are not bound to any specific hour of the day, although as described they must be done daily, the meditations must always be carried out at the same time. One introduces the meditation by creating a feeling of calm for approximately two minutes. Calm is a word bearing great occult power. Gradually a feeling of calmness will be noticeable in the whole body. That is the end of that esoteric lesson. The next esoteric lesson was given in Kassel, June 20th and 27th, 1907. Notes from Ludwig Kluberg, originally written in Latin. The pupil should constantly bear in mind the fundamental principle, I can wait patiently. An impatient, striving effort does not bring us forward. Whatever anyone does will bring fruit in the future. The great masters made this promise. The pupils should meditate upon the first formula every morning at the day's beginning. Beforehand, they should separate themselves from all care in any thoughts. When human beings rise at break of day, they come from the astral world and feel restored and calm. Then the first meditation. Do not think about the words, but rather let them flow into the self. They contain the highest powers, for they have not been assembled arbitrarily, but with the highest wisdom.
Meditate upon everything pictorially. Retrospection last. Look back not at the important things, but at unimportant things, and do so from the end of the day to the beginning. Memory is the bridge that leads us to the invisible chronicle. Streets, fields, flowers, stones, etc. We have in our retrospection, so that we either call them up in our memory or we actually look at them with our eyes. This happens in the previous order of time. But there is another kind of retrospection, as if the sequence in time were rather in space. So-called memory is gone, but something higher is achieved. Backward, because in the higher worlds everything runs from end to beginning, and thus is the pupil to prepare. Retrospection should take place without regret, because regret is egotism. See and think everything, so that it does not depend on the sensory world. Imagine the earlier moon in that way, not with sensory images, but in such a way that anyone who considers matter the only reality would say it is a fantasy. The other example is the three logoi. The Holy Spirit is sound. The Son is light. The Father is fragrance. They are clearer in the other worlds where they are freed from things, and the sound, light, and fragrance of the world permeate space. This first imagination led us to higher realities. This is just a brief version of what was said. The next esoteric lesson, excuse me, that was the end of that esoteric lesson. This is the next esoteric lesson given in Stuttgart on September 15, 1907. Manuscript from Anna Weissmann. There are those among you who have already been doing esoteric exercises and also those who are just now beginning with them. What will be said today is of importance to all of you. You must bear in mind that the personality who is speaking to you is making himself entirely into a mouthpiece for those lofty individualities whom we call the masters of wisdom and harmony of feelings. Concerning the esotericism that you are all striving for, you must be entirely clear about the following. It is extraordinarily important that humankind of the present age receive a powerful infusion of esoteric life. Pestilence, epidemics of insanity, horrible wars would rage in a terrible way among humanity, with materialism getting the upper hand unless humankind is deepened in the spiritual realm according to the decision of the wise masters. Despite the fact that a diffusion of spiritual life is now absolutely necessary, despite the fact that today there absolutely must exist esotericists in much greater numbers as before, there have always been esotericists, it would be absolutely wrong for esotericism to want to propagandize. There must be esotericists, but not all humans should be esotericists. A very simple example can make this clear. 
Is it not the case that everyone needs shoes, and therefore it is necessary that there be cobblers? But it would be all wrong to conclude that everyone should become a cobbler. Neither do all humans have to become esotericists. However, all those who want to become esotericists are given the task to spread theosophy in this incarnation or one of the next, and to foster the spiritual life of humanity. At all times there have been three kinds of esotericists. They should be trained in three different ways in the schools of initiation. The three kinds of training are number one, initiation, number two, clairvoyance, number three, adepthood. In earlier times, these three kinds were distinguished from one another rather sharply. In order to understand this, we again take an example from everyday life. Imagine a country in which there are no railroads and no locomotives. And then imagine that some inhabitants of this country travel to another country far away, where there are such locomotives and railroads. With respect to railroads and locomotives, these people are initiates. And when they return home, they can tell their fellow citizens what they have seen. But the fact that they have observed locomotives and railroads and can see, excuse me, and can speak about them does not mean that they are anywhere near being able also to build railroads. A long course of study is required to become an engineer. It is exactly the same with initiates and adepts. Initiates have traveled in a foreign country, the higher worlds. They know how things look there and can speak about it. However, in order to then become an adept, that is, in order for them to wield the spiritual forces themselves, which they have seen at work, requires again a long, long period of training in the spiritual world. Many initiates need a long series of incarnations before they achieve adepthood, for the forces of the spiritual world are more difficult to handle than those in the physical world. In the past it was the case that initiates and adepts supplemented one another's work in the most beautiful way in esoteric brotherhoods. Today, for example, an engineer who knows exactly how a machine should be built does not actually have to build the machine him or herself. There are workers for that. And the workers, who know how to build a machine superbly, do not need to know exactly the laws according to which the machine was created. Thus someone could be an initiate and see and understand the forces and laws of the spiritual world in their unfolding, but not be able to intervene in these forces him or herself and form something out of them. A second kind of esotericist would be the clairvoyance. Today they cannot be distinguished from the initiates as sharply as in more ancient times. Back then, though, clairvoyance formed a special group among esotericists. You can all well imagine that there can be very clever and educated people who are, however, very short-sighted. There could even be someone who knew the laws of optics very exactly and nevertheless was short-sighted. When doing experiments, he or she would have to rely on those who see well. 
he or she would afterward have to explain to them what they observed, for without the explanation they may well not have been able to grasp it. It is just the same with initiates and clairvoyants. An initiate need not also be a clairvoyant at the same time, and a clairvoyant need not be an initiate from the outset. Namely, in ancient times, of which we are now speaking, many people could not be brought to clairvoyance. They then became initiates. That means they achieved full insight and understanding for spiritual truths and laws, but could not see them. Now there are others in the same brotherhood who were clairvoyant, without, at the same time, being able to understand what they saw. They told what they saw to the initiates who explained it to them. Adepts, as the third kind of esotericist, were then in a position to make practical use of what was seen by clairvoyance and explained by initiates. A very beautiful collaboration existed in these ancient brotherhoods. There was required then a mutual love and tolerance, a great trust such as is no longer at all possible today, indeed such as hardly anyone today can even imagine. Our age is much too egotistical, loveless, and suspicious for anything like this to be possible. For this reason an initiate today is also always to a certain extent clairvoyant and vice versa. Indeed, it is not even possible to train people otherwise. It is also deeply based on the conditions of our times that adepthood must recede almost entirely. Our egotistical age is not in a position to make use of such lofty abilities. No one restrains his or herself in our age more than the adepts. And even if they wanted to intervene in the destinies of human beings, they often cannot, although they have the power to do so and could impart so much blessing. Precisely in the realm of medicine, which has sunk deepest into materialism, adepts must often watch, so to speak, with a bleeding heart, if this is still possible, in such a lofty stage of development, how many, many thousands of poor, sick people languish without it being possible to bring help to them. But even if an adept would deign to want to help a sick person, then what must be done would so contradict the present age that he or she would, at the least, be sitting in a mental hospital the next day. Indeed, the doctors of the whole world would rise up against him or her. Altogether in spiritual life, it is the case that the highest adepts and initiates are the most reserved. Often the highest adepts intervene only twice in the destiny of nations in a couple of centuries. Their power is saved up, so to speak, for very specific occasions. There just are certain things for which humankind is not yet mature enough. If one wanted to give these things to humankind, then they would work only destructively. Indeed, there are certain highest truths that you, my brothers and sisters, cannot yet receive. 
If I were to impart such a truth, then this room would empty within a matter of minutes. Present-day human beings simply cannot bear certain truths, even if they have already reached a certain stage in esoteric training. And yet these are precisely the very loftiest truths, and your development has the goal that you should one day receive them. But those who receive them too soon simply lose all stability and steadiness in life. Imagine a narrow footbridge laid over a deep abyss. How many of you could walk over it without becoming dizzy? Certainly not all. Now, if someone measured out a narrow strip with the width of the footbridge on the floor of a room and painted it, then everyone would be able to walk across easily without thinking or becoming dizzy or straying left or right from the strip. And yet all they are doing is nothing more than they would have to do on the narrow footbridge that leads over the abyss. The continuation of the floor to the left and right of the narrow strip is what lends them safety and confidence. We human beings walk the narrow footbridge on the strip on the floor. The continuation of the strip is the physical world, the world of the senses. It gives human beings security and confidence because it constantly corrects our false thoughts, feelings, etc. Now imagine that the boundaries of the sense would f- world fall away, fell away. Maybe that again. Now imagine that the boundaries of the sense world fell away. Then the human being would hover in the air as a matter of fact without any external supports. This is an experience that everyone must one day go through. In our time, it is urgently necessary that theosophy flow into life more and more. And in the coming years, it will also happen more and more. Precisely in your immediate surroundings, this will be noticeable. People will hunger for theosophy as if for their daily bread. The truths, as they are spread according to the Rosicrucian method, can be fully understood by the ordinary intellect. Those people who cannot understand theosophical teachings simply do not want to exert their minds enough. You all know that the human heart stands only at the beginning of its development and in the future will be an extraordinarily important organ. However, no one needs to take this fact on good faith, but rather the simplest observation and reflection allows us to recognize this. In the human body we distinguish between smooth and striated muscles. All muscles that we can set in motion voluntarily are striated. All involuntary muscles are smooth. Now it is a big riddle for modern-day science that the heart is made of striated muscle, even though it is an involuntary muscle. This must say to us that although it is not now a voluntary muscle, in the future it will be. And that is also the case. In the future, all humans will be able to cause their heart to move according to their will, as they today move their arm muscles. Nevertheless, many people are not so entirely wrong when they are unwilling, to begin with, to accept certain truths. 
a great deal depends upon also making these things understandable for people. We want now to bring a little clarity to how one can prove theosophical truths for oneself. We speak of the teaching of reincarnation and of the law of karma. Then some gullible people come along and say that the idea of reincarnation seems very believable and understandable, for all the riddles of life can thereby be solved. If one takes a look at life and sees how a child is born frankly in the gutter and already from birth predestined to nothing good and to pass his or her life in wretchedness and misery, and if one sees how a different child comes into the world in a palace, is surrounded from the first day by caring love and is equipped with all the gifts of the mind, then here the teaching about reincarnation can give a good explanation when it says that both children have themselves laid the foundation for the present life in an earlier incarnation. But then thoughtful people come along and say, quote, The fact that your teaching of reincarnation can give a nice explanation for many of the riddles of life does not mean that we are any closer to believing it, for an explanation is not a proof. Close quote. People who speak in this way are entirely right. For I am not allowed to consider a Weltanschauung correct because it is convenient for me. But it is also true that these people could, if they seriously wanted, give themselves a first-rate proof for the teaching of reincarnation. One can say to oneself, quote, I will assume that reincarnation exists. Indeed, I do not believe it, but I can just assume it. I will act entirely in such a way as if my assumption were the truth and wait to see what comes of it. A person who thinks and acts in this way will make astonishing discoveries. With everything that happens to the person, he or she will think, quote, In an earlier life I myself have laid the foundation for this and now bear the consequences of my own deeds. Close quote. If such a person once unconsciously acted foolishly and the punishment overtakes him or her, that person will think, quote, Now I will immediately carry out this foolish deed once again in order to see that it was I who laid the groundwork to cause these ugly consequences. For if I myself am the cause, then now, when I consciously commit this mistake, the same consequences should set in, close quote. This is the true meaning of the biblical words, quote, If someone strikes you on the left cheek, offer the right one to him or her as well. Quote. Those who manage to seek the reason for everything that happens to them within themselves have accomplished a great deal. Those who do this will soon notice how it brings them forward, how they begin to free themselves from the chains of karma and are increasingly able to take their own life in hand. Such people walk their life path freely and confidently. In a similar way, one can prove for oneself all the teachings of theosophy. Thus, we all want to try to carry the spiritual into life more and more, and let it become alive in us. To try to carry what the great masters cause to stream into us, in light and life. And you should all be clear 
that in the future the battles that theosophy, and in particular esotericism, will have to withstand will constantly get more intense. What is needed is to stand firmly and maintain silence. Work done quietly is often the greater work. Learn to keep the silence, my brothers and sisters, and to stand firmly while gazing at your goal and at the lofty masters who stand by us. That is the end of that esoteric lesson. The next esoteric lesson was given in Hanover, September 25, 1907. It's rather short. Manuscript from Wilhelm Hüberschleiden. First of all, there is a question whether this is actually from an esoteric lesson. The first part of the manuscript could be a summary of the beginning of Chapter 9, Initiation, from Eliphas Levi's work titled Dogma and Ritual of Higher Magic, Volume 1, Dogma, Vienna, Munich, Planeck, Leipzig, 1927. There is a second part inserted in the manuscript that has been left out here because it belongs to the esoteric lesson of November 29, 1907, according to the manuscript from Camilla Bondries. Okay, here's the little piece. Three esoteric things are necessary for inner development. Number one, the lamp of Hermes Trismegistus with three flames. Number two, the three times folded mantle of Apollonius. Number three, the threefold jointed staff of the patriarchs, the masters, the three flames with which one must live into the teachings are thinking, feeling, and willing, parenthesis, the study of theosophical teachings, the esoteric reports, to which one must devote oneself. One must not be content with the exercises. One must entirely live into the teaching of the three flames with willing, feeling, and thinking. Close parenthesis. The mantle is, so to speak, the skin that one must come out of. Stepping out is the second fold of the mantle, and turning back to the body is the third fold, or turning. The end of that esoteric lesson. This is now the last esoteric lesson in this section. It's uh, given in Berlin on October 9th, 1907. Record A is a manuscript from Matilda Scholl and Lilla Harris. Record B, manuscript from Marie Steiner. Archive number 3715. Record A. Everything spoken in an esoteric lesson is given to us directly from the masters, and he who speaks it is only an instrument of their intentions. The difference between an exoteric and an esoteric lesson consists in this, that teaching and knowledge is received in the former, while in the latter something is experienced. The masters are constantly speaking to human beings. Only those who are prepared, whose souls are open so that the masters can find access to them, can hear their voice. Esoteric work is of the greatest significance for the evolution of the world, but also for the human being who occupies the simplest social position. The year 1879 is a most important turning point in the evolution of humankind because of an event that took place on the astral plane. Since then our culture has taken a different direction. In 1250, a spiritual stream began that reached its high point in 1459 when Christian Rosenkreutz was elevated to a knight of the Rose Cross. 
Then in 1510, an age began that in esotericism is called the age of Gabriel. In 1879, the age of Michael began. The succeeding age will be called the age of Oriphiel. Great battles will rage among human beings. For this reason, a small band is being prepared now, a band that is destined to carry the torch of spiritual knowledge that will shine light in that dark age. Discussion of the meditation, quote, in pure rays of light, close quote. Imaginative picturing of the individual verses. Quote, in pure rays of light shines the divinity of the world, close quote. The divinity pours itself as silver shining moonlight over the external world. We feel ourselves as if permeated by this light flowing through us and around us. Quote, in pure love to all beings radiates the divinity of my soul. After going into the surrounding world, where we sought to recognize the divinity, we are absorbed into our own inner soul. And through the love that connects us to all beings, we find the connection with God and feel Him in our own soul. Quote, I rest in the divinity of the world. The word rest, Ruha in German, has a magical power. Those who manage to concentrate on this word and allow it to work on them feel as if they were entirely pervaded by a feeling of calmness, serenity, and peace. When we find within us a feeling for our connection with God, then we find within us this calmness and this peace. Calm surrounds us and penetrates into us. Quote, I will find myself in the divinity of the world. Quote. And now there arises with us the imagination of a luminous point, a shining spark that shines to us from out of the distance and toward which we strive, and within which we will find ourselves in the bosom of God. Significance of the individual sounds and their occult effects. E. Sinking into the innermost part of a being. Ah. The divinity poured out into surrounding world. Oh. Embracing everything with love. Ooh. Permeation by great serenity. The uh, umla, uh, the diphthong oe, e, I believe, is concentration in one's own inner world, and then the diphthong ae, e, the external expression, introduction, preparation. Exercise for overcoming fear. In the morning, plan to carry out an action at a specific hour in the afternoon. Think it through into the details. Do this exercise for four to eight weeks. A further exercise, 1 colon 4 colon 7, not sure what that means, readers aside and readers aside, is to plan to do something, think it through on the fourth day, and carry it out on the seventh day. A further exercise is as follows. On the first day, decision and procurement of all the physical necessities, characteristics. On the twelfth day, vivid mental picture, think through with feeling, imaginative. 
on the nineteenth day, reflect on one's own powers and abilities. On the twenty-third day, consider the hindrances. On the twenty-seventh day, prepare with love. On the thirtieth day, execution. That's the end of record A. Record B, just as this, it's very short. E, striving upward to the divinity, to the soul of the world. I, holy awe before the divinity of God. Ah, the loftiness of the divinity. E, upward striving. A, somewhat less lofty. O, encompassing the divinity. U, to be frightened by the encompassing. U, resting in the divinity of God. That is the end of that esoteric lesson and the end of this section of the book.